Do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 8. The words that we had read to us a moment ago are breaking into a conversation that has been going on between uh, Jesus and uh, numbers of people in the crowd. They're disputing among themselves. You have to go back to chapter 7, verse 40 to see the context. They're debating among themselves whether he is a prophet or the prophet, whether he is the Messiah. They're wondering how the Messiah could come from Galilee. They know perfectly well that the scripture said that Messiah was the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. And so there's a division among the people over him. And it's in that context, really, that there are two groups, I think, in these verses that we, we read here. In verse 31, the phrase in John's Gospel, particularly when he uses the expression, the Jews, he's not referring to everybody in general, but to the authorities, the Sanhedrin. And among those people, there were those who believed in him. And there are others who are answering him back. So there's a crowd of people. Different people are throwing in various uh, contributions to this debate. And uh, we have to try and hear voices off asking this question, that question, and Jesus' response to those questions. And it's against that background that Jesus introduces this idea of freedom. That's one of the big words here. Uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And we, we understand that the quest for freedom is a general thing. Before we come to the text, we look at the question generally. In many ways, the quest for freedom drives human history. Rousseau, the 17th century, said, man was born free, but everywhere he is in chains. The whole of the 20th century, in many ways, was about getting freedom. Freedom for women to vote, freedom for workers to be free to strike, freedom in the apartheid regime for uh, the Africans to have the vote and so on. Free from Nazi tyranny in Europe, freedom from communism in the Cold War, freedom from cultural taboos in the 1960s. Freedom was in the air. And as much as there's talk about freedom, there's also talk uh, that Christianity in particular is designed to curb and inhibit human freedom. Diderot, for example, said this, there will be no freedom until the last king has been strangled by the entrails of the last priest. Ouch. So there's this idea going about, you see, that that somehow or other Jesus is out to spoil our fun, that he wants to put us in a straitjacket of rules and regulations, that he, that he wants us to leave the world and go live in a monastery somewhere, or worse, go and be a missionary in Iran. Now where did this idea come from, that Jesus is out to spoil the party? Where did, where did the notion arise from that somehow or other Jesus Christ of all people, is out to diminish you or rob you of your freedom. 
You read the New Testament and you read statements like this. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. You, you read about the Apostle Paul describing the glorious liberty of the children of God. And here you have Jesus saying, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What, is we, what do, we do, do we learn about freedom in these verses? First of all, we learn about the myth of freedom. Jesus confronts the myth of freedom in verse 33 and 34. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And some answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that we shall be set free? And the myth of freedom, of course, is that we are already free. Some people in this crowd interpreted Jesus' use of the word freedom in strictly national terms. Freedom was important to Israel. They celebrated it every year at the Passover. We were slaves in Egypt. But you brought us out, you freed us by a mighty hand. And so they found the language of Jesus coming to set them free as offensive. It implied that somehow they were still in a state of bondage. We are Abraham's descendants. Whatever it looks like on the outside, we have never been the slaves of anyone. Now when you consider the history of Israel, Egypt, slavery, Babylonia, exile... The current situation here in Jesus' day, under Roman rule, they've been under Greek rule, Babylonian, Greek, and, uh, and now Roman rule. And yet the reality was, wasn't it, that as they still do, the people, uh, the Jewish people have a sense of independence, whatever their circumstances, they have a sense of their own identity. And that's what they're saying to Jesus. doesn't matter what the external looks like. You know that because we're Abraham's descendants, we have never, we have never acknowledged that we are slaves of anyone. I think that at one level is probably what they're saying. I think there's another level of what they're saying is this, that many of them personally had never been actual slaves of anyone. That is, they'd never been subservient to or indentured due to some financial irresponsibility or some criminal misconduct. There's a bit of classism going on there. We're not those kinds of slaves. And it's not just people like these people speaking to Jesus who have that notion. There is a general notion that we human beings are brought into the world and we are intrinsically free. John Dryden articulates the secular myth of freedom in his words, I am as free as nature, first made man, ere the base laws of servitude began, when in the wild woods the noble savage ran. And yet, you don't have to live very long to see that there is no such thing as absolute freedom. Mark Twain wryly commented, it is by the goodness of God that in our country we have those three unspeakably precious things. Freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and the prudence never to practice either of them. 
our trust in. Well, the myth is I am basically free. I am free already. I have no master. I am free to think what I want. I am free to do what I want. Freedom means independence. What Jesus is saying is this. You say freedom is doing what you want to do, but there's more to do with freedom than that. And he explains it to them. Here's how he explains what he's saying to these people. He says to them, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He uses the absolute word for slave here. Nobody can commit sin and boast of their ultimate freedom. The person who sins is a slave to sin, whether they're conscious of that or not. Because they cannot, by their own mind and will, break free of their imprisonment. Whatever controls us is the master of our lives. You think about that for a moment. If you are somebody who seeks power, then you're controlled by power. If you're someone who seeks acceptance, then you're controlled by the people you want to please. That's the way it goes. Martin Luther, in his uh, book, The Bondage of the Will, and if you haven't read it, you need to read that book, describes the image of a horse and a rider. Humanity is like the horse, and each of us, is, in a sense, has a rider who steers us this way and that, and the rider is either God steering our life or the devil steering our life. Jesus here is not debating the matter of free will. He was talking to Jews, learned in the law of God. They had the scripture. They were perfectly understood that human nature was fallen human nature. They understood that. They, they, he had no problem debating that with the people with whom he's discussing this. But they thought somehow or other their spirit of independence meant that they themselves interiorly were free. And as their Messiah, he sets about challenging their sense of exceptionalism. He's saying to them, contrary to what you think, you need the freedom that I have brought to you. This is the principle the Apostle Paul enunciates in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The freedom we have is not total freedom. You know that. I have a friend who some years ago was boasting to me about what speed he could do in his Mercedes. And he made the mistake one day coming back up the road from England to Scotland. That's the best direction that that road goes, by the way, from England to Scotland. And uh, he obviously was anxious to get back home to the promised land. And he was driving on the 80 mile an hour limit road at 134 miles an hour. The road was empty, it was a German car. German roads don't have any limits, so he just thought he would try and reenact the German freedom in Scotland. Well, I think they chased him for about 60 miles until they caught up with him. 
and he lost his license for six months and as somebody who had to drive him here there and everywhere during that six months I know perfectly well not only was his freedom inhibited but so was mine and other people in his family as well none of us enjoys total freedom to do what we want Jesus says forcefully everyone who sins that is everybody here is de facto a slave to sin and therefore needs freedom and in doing that what he's doing is placing everybody on level ground as far as God is concerned and of course the impact of that on Jesus hearers is the same kind of impact that has on us today we don't like to be called sinner sinner the s word is is not a word we like sure it's true we're able to admit nobody's perfect and nobody likes to throw stones at other people and we all have our petty annoyances and we may even have our own little foibles but we don't like the s word because with the s word sin goes this other s word slavery whoever sins jesus says is a slave to sin we don't like enslavement in that sense it sounds like something else that we know very well it sounds like addiction if you think of an addict the stereotype that comes to mind is of some pathetic person at the rock bottom stages of destitution and self-destruction so we congratulate ourselves that we are not there we're not in that place and yet sin is addictive it's part we choose it we choose it even though it does us damage even though it destroys relationships and can destroy our own health we choose it because we are addicted to sin Calvin College professor Cornelius Plantagenet argues how at every stage our sins are driven by desire not necessarily the the usual suspects brain belly or loin but ultimately a longing for wholeness and completeness in short a longing for God but we're not willing to wait for God and have faith in him so instead as with all idolatry we settle for surrogates that tap into the energies of our vital spiritual longings and usurp those energies for attitudes and behaviors that drain us rather than fulfill us it's like blackmail every time a demand is met the demand escalates and soon your sin owns you you are a slave to sin you live for what rules you this is a common New Testament theme that humanity is enslaved to sin Peter says 1 Peter chapter 2 a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him in the church we sometimes talk about the struggle we have with three areas three enemies the world the flesh the devil we're enslaved to the world what is the world the ways of the world as it's called in the Bible it's the culture what the culture wants how the culture thinks the direction the culture is going in nobody wants to be different from the culture we don't want to stand out from the crowd we're tempted to go along with the flow we are slaves to the world we're slaves to the flesh another word that's used that is a word for our lower human nature sinful nature we want to gratify what the apostle calls the cravings of our sinful nature and follow its desires and its thoughts we want what it wants 
wants. Woody Allen, the heart wants what it wants. Regardless, regardless of any law and the effect that that wanting has on other people. And above all, we are enslaved to the devil. We follow not only the ways of the world and the ways of our desires, but the ways of the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And because we give in to these other things, he is the rider of the horse. We are his playthings. And we are never more so than when we are unaware of his existence and of his presence. Paul wrote to Timothy that sinners are taken captive by Satan to do Satan's will. Now this challenges common ideas, doesn't it? Of expression that we use, that we've developed over the years, an expression of what we call free will. It's a strange expression. And uh, while it's true that human beings are religious and that there are very few genuine atheists, actually, that even primitive tribes have got well-developed religious concepts. The anthropologist Robert Brow argued, after a study of primitive peoples, he suggested that the human race has moved not from the primitive conceptions of God to higher conceptions of God, but rather, he argues, that the human race has consistently been running away from ideas of a high and holy God and seeking out a God who is less than that. And he did his research in primitive people groups. And he said about them that animists, primitive pagan groups, have a truer picture of God than most Westerns do, although they don't worship him. They believe in a great true God who stands up behind and above and beyond the pantheon of animistic deities that they worship or lesser gods that they worship. But they don't worship him because they, they don't fear him as much as they fear the animistic spirits that they encounter day by day. What people generally do with religion today is to use religion even to avoid any real connection with God. They run away from God. And the reality is we're, our will is not as free as we think it is because we are not free very often to choose God. We, we disown Him. We willingly go against Him. We disregard Him. We don't want the God who's there. We want a God who suits us. We hate His righteousness because it exposes who we are. Lorraine Boitner puts it like this, as the bird with a broken wing is free to fly, but not able. So the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. How can he repent of his sin when he loves it? How can he come to God when he hates him? That's the real thing, the real issue. You listen to your friends, you listen to yourself, and you will see that no man, as Jesus puts it, can come to me unless the Father draws him. The myth of freedom is that you are intrinsically free. Jesus says, no, you're not. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. But Jesus also announces here the basis of freedom in verses 35 and 36. Look what he says. He says, the basis of freedom is a change of status 
from being a slave to being a son or being part of the family. If you take a slave and put him in a household, the slave will never feel secure. He'll be all the time wondering and worrying whether he'll put a foot wrong, whether he'll break the rules, whether he'll displease his master. He's never really at home. You take a person who isn't a Christian. You put them in a Christian environment. They don't want to be there. They don't like it. They don't like to be with God's people singing God's praises. They feel uncomfortable. You take a, you take a person who isn't a Christian and you put them in heaven. That's the ultimate environment. That would, that would be hell to them. It would be awful to them. They would hate to be there. That's the last place in the world or out of this world that they would like to be in the presence of God in heaven. Because they don't belong. They feel like an outsider. Their whole attitude to God, the very things that make us love God, are the very things they hate. Their whole attitude to God is, He's out to get me. His rules are horrible rules. I hate those rules. I hate being near Him because His laws, His laws are a bondage to me. They're a burden to me. They get me down. Everything I hear about him, the knowledge of him, the word about him, gets me down. And that's the way it would be like for you if you came into heaven with God. What you need, therefore, in that context is you need to belong. You see what Jesus says here, a son belongs to the family forever. That's what you need. You need to know that you belong. The, the expression, the family there, is a euphemism for the church of God, the people of God, the family of God, the, the holy nation. The son belongs. That's the difference between a slave who works and works and works and works and never quite ever gets into the family. The son belongs in the household forever. Now I think he's talking a bit about himself there. He's thinking about his eternal relationship within the Trinity, within the one God. And he's saying that in that eternal relationship within the Godhead, we believe in one God, remember, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, one name. Within that, he had existed forever. He had belonged forever. And it's because Jesus is who he is and what he is that he can give the freedom of which he speaks. He has the right to, to give, to adopt you into his family and give you his freedom. So look at what the work of the Son is. He says, freedom comes through Christ because in Christ you know you belong. In Christ you know that you're one of God's children and this and this alone can help you deal with your past and help you deal with your present. A slave, he says, has no permanent place in the family. And as long as you're a slave, no matter how good you think you have it, your residence is temporary. You're paying rent all the time. Only when you become a child, the father, a member of the family, do you become a permanent residence. It's home for you. And what Jesus is saying is this, if you're a prisoner, if you're a slave, if you're imprisoned and enslaved, what you don't need is another slave. You don't need another prisoner. You need somebody to break in from the outside and set you free. That's what he's saying. And all over this chapter, all over the place, he's been telling these people, 
that he is not one of them, that he is different from them. I do always the things that please the Father. Can you show me, prove to me that I've done any sin? It's against that background of his own credentials, the fact that he is perfectly at home with the Father, while we slip back and in fear of him, he is perfectly at home with him. He has been face to face with the Father in the unity of the Godhead from all eternity. We're told that right at the very beginning of this gospel. He is the eternal Son. And when the eternal Son sets you free, you live in God's presence, rent-free forever, because you belong. It's your home. It's your possession. It is your place. The people he's speaking to, the people that Jesus is speaking to, couldn't get that. Many of them could not get that. This is a teaching, you know, that Jesus uh, gave and that is picked up by the apostles in Romans 8, for example. Writing of the adoption. This great picture of adoption into the family of God that we, we find in the New Testament. Especially is that true for those of us who come from among the Goyim, the, the Gentile nations. We've been adopted into the family of God. The family of God is the Israel of God. And uh, our right to be here is a right given to us as a gift. It's not ours by right, by native right, by uh, descent from Abraham. Uh, our right to be there comes simply because by grace God has dealt with us the way he dealt with Abraham. When Abraham himself was Goyim, one of the nations, one of the pagan worshippers, and God justified him by what? By believing, by faith. And today we are justified and brought into the family by believing in the Messiah. And here's what Paul writes. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption and by him you cry, Abba, Father. This adoption of men and women into the family of God is the hope for the liberation of the entire universe. Creation itself, he goes on to say, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Right into the Galatians, another place. Paul says this, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba, so you know, are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has make, made you also an heir. You notice again the use of the word son applies to men and women, believing men and believing women, because the son is the heir. All of us are sons in that sense. We are heirs of God. And he goes on to say there in Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. What is the basis of freedom? The best basis of freedom is our being connected to the Son, to the Son of God, and adopted, therefore, into the family of God. As John says earlier in chapter 1, to all who received him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he describes the myth of freedom and the basis of freedom. And then lastly, he describes the way of freedom. Let's go back to verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you, talking to these believing people, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I don't know whether these people were believers in a kind of a way, just as you get believers today in a kind of a way, and they needed to deepen that, but Jesus is spelling it out for them. What does it look like to be somebody who is a follower of Jesus? Well, it means holding to his teaching, holding to his doctrine, or to use perhaps the most literal verbatim translation, abiding in his word. That is the word he was teaching, of course. Abiding means to stay there, park there, don't go anywhere else, pitch your tent there, make your home there in his teaching. That's what it means to be a disciple. Notice this, that where he begins in describing discipling is with his word. That's where you begin. You don't begin with actions. You don't begin with programs. You don't begin with what behaviors. You begin with the word. That's where we begin the Christian life. That's in fact where we grow in the Christian life. And when he talks about abiding in his teaching, he does not mean ascertain more facts and you'll be free from ignorance. No, he's saying come to terms with the truth. He's using this word truth in the way it's used throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Truth in the Hebrew scriptures is transcendent. That is, it's bigger than the universe. Truth in the Hebrew scriptures has to do with reality rather than something you imagine or dream up. Truth is concrete. Truth is dense with meaning. Truth is God. God is truth. And Jesus will say himself, won't he, in a later chapter of this gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Pilate challenges him about what is truth, Jesus just keeps pointing him to himself. This truth about which Jesus is speaking is not a mystical force, as in Star Wars, or a mathematical formula. Rather, this truth is found in God and in God's Son and in Jesus. And this is the truth we need to live by, the truth that we find not only in Christ the person, but he has caused that truth to be captured and to be written. And in Scripture, that word is truth. Your word is truth, Jesus says. And it's submission to that word, this word that we are studying, that is truth, that we find freedom. Trains, you know were invented and were built to run on rails. While a train is on the track, it has perfect freedom to express its trainness. It can go as fast as you can push that train and it will be fine while it's on the tracks. Should a train decide in a moment 
of absent-mindedness that it's fed up being on the tracks and looking around, seeing the vistas of the mountain ranges it's passing or, or the cities that it's going through, decides it wants to try the mountain ranges or the cities and leave the track. It's disaster, isn't it? That's the problem with humanity. Humanity was given in the garden the one word of God. Do you remember? It starts with the word, the same word, the word of God. And he rejected the one word of God that could save him. And we are still picking up the pieces today. Jesus says to these people, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't let us have the liberal way out here. Christianity is not a doctrine but a way of life. That's the old liberal slogan. No, no. You, you read through the New Testament. How, uh, how do you live the Christian life? By the renewing of your mind. That's where it begins. He's saying to these people, to be a follower of mine, you have to be a thinking person. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a strong advocate of having a warm-hearted response to God, was also very clear on this point that he said that warm-heartedness must never be disconnected from clear thinking. And he refers to this in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, he says this, faith according to our Lord's teaching here is primarily thinking. The whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. Now you think about, you can enlarge what Lloyd-Jones says here. Circumstances to bludgeon him. Feelings to bludgeon him. Desires to bludgeon him. Disappointments to bludgeon him. We must, he goes on, spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons of observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic. We must never think of faith as something mystical. We should not sit down in the armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us out of the air. That is not Christian. And it's not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds. Think about that. Think about that. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass that grows and the lilies of the field. Consider them. Think about it. Work it all out. Contemplate beauty, says Lloyd-Jones. Contemplate nature. Consider the works of God's hands and then read them through the prism of Scripture and you see their wonder more fully than the unaided human eye can ever see it. In the light of the interpreting word, through the instruction of the illuminating spirit, the works of God lose none of their wonder, but rather gain in glory as we see them in the light of, and love of God. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. That is, you will come against reality. This is the reality the world is denying. The reality of who God is in Christ. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we pray this evening you would take this little section of the scripture, that you would draw us to him, the Lord Jesus, who is truth incarnate with skin on. 
And grant, Lord, that we might abide in that word that he has given to us, that teaching that he's given to us. The Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures, together, one word of God. Help us to live in light of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.